Well, good morning to each of you. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 4. And as you are turning there, just one very brief announcement. Whenever we offer a foundations course, there are always stragglers that bring up the rear. And that is the case the last time. And so it is my privilege to introduce to the body here, Grace Community Church, a couple of new members, Kenneth and Rebecca Turner. And I saw them earlier. I know they're here so they can stand up. There they are. Yeah. Wonderful. I told you it would be painless. Uh, Kenneth and Rebecca serve out at Happy Hill. And so if you've not met them yet, uh, please make it a point today or some Sunday in the future to introduce yourself and welcome them to our membership here at Grace Community Church. Have you found Luke chapter 4? If you are a regular, as opposed to non-regular, if you are a regular, uh, you've heard those words before, haven't you? Let's turn to Luke chapter 4. Uh, I think this is my sixth or seventh sermon out of this text, and I promise you right now that this is my last. Uh, Luke chapter 4. We are, next week being the first uh, Sunday of the month, we're going to go to the book of Psalms, which is our practice, our habit, our tradition. And then in June, we'll come back to Luke, but not Luke 4. After today, we will have the message of Luke 4, I pray, firmly in our minds. And we're going to return to Luke for three Sundays to consider our response to all that we have seen in Luke chapter 4. The response, I can sum it up for you now in three words. Faith, repentance, and self-denial. And so some of you younger ones, some of you not so younger ones, if you want a very profitable, I trust it will be profitable, rewarding study over the next couple of months, here's what I encourage you to do. Read two chapters each day from the book of Luke. And so 12 days, you will have read the entire book. And look for those three words. The first, faith, which is the noun, or the verb, believe. And note all of the references and instances and ask yourself, what do I learn about believing from the book of Luke? Then look up the word repent, the verb, or repentance, the noun, do the same thing. And then also watch for the expression self-denial or denial of self and how that is illustrated and explained and unpacked in the book of Luke. And that will set us up wonderfully then in the month of June, Lord willing, for those three studies based on Luke's gospel account, how are we to respond to all that we have considered out of Luke chapter 4, faith, repentance, and self-denial. But for today, one more look at the fourth chapter of Luke, and I invite you to follow along as I read beginning in the 14th verse, and again, I will go as far as verse 30. This has been our text now for six or seven sermons, and today we wrap it up. Verse 14, 
And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set at liberty, uh, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Now, why have we spent so much time on this incident, this narrative, these verses? Obviously, I have mentioned it a couple of times. From my vantage point, these verses are pivotal because they unlock the entire book. That basically, through the remainder of the book, all Luke is doing is unpacking, explaining in greater detail those verses that the Lord Jesus cites from the book of Isaiah, you have them there, verses 18 through 19. So that's one reason why we're spending so much time here. It's so important we get this text to understand the book as a whole. Another reason is this, and it's slightly polemical. We're spending a lot of time on these verses and this passage because we want to make sure we understand who Jesus is. Who is he? So much confusion today, and sadly, uh, increasingly so when we interact with people, professing believers even, when we interact with people, we have to begin by deconstructing all of the false, false notions concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. Was he a philosopher? Was he a healer, teacher, humanist, reformer, prophet, visionary? Philanthropist, who was he? 
Well, here in this text, we hear from his own lips, the Lord Jesus extracting a text from the book of Isaiah, which he views as defining him and conveying the essence of who he is and why he came. So the first reason, the second reason rather, we're looking at these verses, spending so much time on them, is polemical in nature. We want to make sure we're clear as to who Jesus is. The third reason is this, it's pastoral. We want to make sure we are daily fixing our gaze upon Jesus Christ. There are so many distracting things in this world. You know it. Think back on the past week and all that has occupied your thoughts. All that has gripped and captivated your emotions. All that has kept you tossing and turning on your bed at night. And if you're anything like me, the Lord Jesus does not rank very high in my list of things that occupies my attention. Oh, how he must capture our gaze. And we must look to the Lord Jesus as our ultimate source of meaning and happiness and satisfaction. We are made, we are constituted, we are wired for something far greater than this world has to offer us. Please hear me. Oh, please hear me. The right soulmate will not make you happy. Sorry to burst your bubble, but better get it over with right out in the open right now. The right soulmate, if you think he will, she will, you are delusional. The right soulmate will not make you happy. The right family, number of kids, and their behavior, corresponding behavior, will not make you happy. The right career, calling in life, will not make you happy. The right recreation, hobby, pursuit, whatever you think, whatever you identify, if only I had that, and if only my life were like that, I would be happy. That is delusional thinking. These things cannot make us happy because they were never designed nor intended to. There is but one who can make us happy. It is the Lord Jesus Christ himself who declared, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We're spending so much time in this text because we want to make sure that day by day, 24-7, our eyes, the eyes of faith, the eyes of our heart are fixed firmly, squarely, completely, entirely upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we come to the text again today one more time Look with me at verse 16. Where is Jesus? He has come to Nazareth. What is Nazareth? This is the place where he grew up. This is where he grew from a boy to a man. This is the place he played. This is the place he learned. This is the place he stood with his father, his adoptive father, Joseph, 
and he acquired a trade as a carpenter. This is the place where he devoted himself to that trade for probably from his teens until 30 years of age, making furniture, I don't know what, but making a living anyway as a carpenter. Uh, This is the place he attended funerals. He attended weddings. This is the place where he worshiped in the synagogue. Uh, This is the place most likely where he buried his adoptive father, Joseph. He's gone by the time Jesus embarks on his ministry. And so this is the place where he lived and took care of, I suppose, his mother Mary. It's the place where he interacted with his half-brothers and sisters, probably a bunch of cousins as well. This is the place where he likely saw some of them married and even had nieces and nephews running around. This is his hometown. He has left Nazareth, Nazareth just for a brief time, and he's wandered down to the Jordan River. Why has he gone there? Because he has an appointed rendezvous with John the Baptist. And as he enters the waters and he is baptized, the heavens open, the Spirit descends, and at that moment he is anointed with the Holy Spirit for the fulfillment of his ministry. He remains in the region of Capernaum, And he goes from synagogue to synagogue, town to town, just for a relatively brief period of time. And he's preaching and he's healing. And a report has gone out concerning him throughout the land. You can imagine the buzz in the air when he wanders back into his little town of Nazareth and everyone beholds this man whom they have known since he was an infant. And as was his custom, no big surprise, everyone else is there. On the Sabbath, he enters into the synagogue. He stands to read. It's the prophet Isaiah. And he turns to Isaiah 61. He reads these words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Skip down to verse 21. He then said what? Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then from there down to verse 30, we have the response. A pivotal text, a pivotal moment in the ministry of Jesus Christ. These verses, and this is what I want you to follow this morning. These verses tell us six things concerning Jesus. Some we've already seen. I'm just going to review them. And some are new. But six central things or truths that these verses, this text, this incident convey to us. Number one, these verses tell us of his identity. They tell us, they, 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 they remove all uncertainty. They tell us exactly who he is. He stands, he takes the scroll, he opens it to Isaiah 61. You go back and you read the book of Isaiah, it is in many ways the pinnacle of Old Testament prophecy. And central to the book of Isaiah are what are known as the servant songs. Do you remember? If you were here maybe a month ago, we went back and we read portions of them. There are five key servant songs. The fifth is Isaiah 61. 
And the Lord Jesus, inciting from Isaiah 61, and in then declaring, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, he is, he is claiming to be the culmination of the servant songs. He is, for that matter, claiming to be the culmination of the book of Isaiah. He is the capstone. This is his claim. He is the capstone of prophetic revelation. If you go back and you read Isaiah and all of this emphasis upon the servant, this individual who would come, this individual who would be the true Israel, this man who would be the true servant, this man who would come to redeem, to save, to reveal, this one who would come to accomplish the purposes of God, the Lord Jesus is standing. He is stating it unequivocally. He is making it as plain as he possibly can I am here. You read the Old Testament, it is all about me. Right back to that first promise in Genesis 3.15 concerning the seed of the woman. Every hope, every promise, every covenant, every prophecy now finds in that moment its culmination in this man, Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about it as to Christ's own self-identity and understanding of who he was, the incarnate Son of God, the promised Messiah, the Christ himself, the promised Redeemer, Deliverer, the seed of David, the seed of Abraham, the seed of the woman, he has come. That is his claim. It is clear, as clear as the noonday's sun as to how he is identifying himself and who he is claiming to be. These verses tell us of his identity. Secondly, these verses tell us of his calling. He came. We know it. We celebrate it. We rejoice in it. He came to destroy, overthrow, undo the works of the devil. He came. We sing of it. We, we praise God for it. He came to redeem his people, to give his life as a ransom for many. He did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And we say amen to that. But the central point in the text is what? Verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach. He has come as a preacher. He has come to reveal. He has come to proclaim all that he has heard and received from his Father. This is the eternal word of God made incarnate, now revealing and proclaiming the word of God to us. This is his calling. Notice thirdly that these verses tell us of his audience. To whom does he preach? Or for whom rather has he come? He identifies them using three key words in verse 18. The first is what? They're poor. The second is what? They're captives. The third is what? They are blind. This is not, and I have emphasized this, I believe I have emphasized this every Sunday we have opened this text because we must be clear on it. The, this is not a physical description. This is a spiritual description. He is describing those who are spiritually poor. He is speaking of those who are spiritually captive. 
He has in view before him those who are spiritually blind. What does that mean? He has come for and he preaches to those who in Bunyan-esque language labor under that heavy load of their sin. He's going to say it himself in Luke chapter 5. I have not come to call the righteous. I got nothing for them. I have absolutely nothing for them. I have not come to call the righteous, but the unrighteous. Oh, you mean there are righteous people? Perish the thought. That's not his point. His point is what? There are plenty of people who think they are righteous people. I can't do anything for them. They're completely clueless when it comes to their need. They are self-satisfied and self-sufficient, and they think they're going to, I don't know, somehow merit, earn, arrive at God's favor on their own basis, their own effort, their own merit, whatever the case. I have not come to call them. Uh, They are blind. They are captive. They are poor. What's the problem? They don't realize it. There's nothing I can offer them. I've come for those who are weighed down by that heavy load, heavy burden of sin, and they are looking for a Savior. You think in, in, physical, think in physical terms. You think of that individual who has got the diagnosis, some sort of ailment, some sort of illness. As soon as that diagnosis comes in, what does that individual then look for? A remedy. That's Christ's point. I, I, I have come for those who recognize their spiritual illness, those who are acutely aware of that burden on their backs, what it is precisely they deserve from God. Their, their unworthiness, their inability to earn God's favor, those who are looking for a remedy, a remedy for their sin. And I have come to preach to them. They are my audience. Fourthly, these verses tell us of his message. What is his message? Well, to the poor, what does he proclaim? Verse 18, good news. To the captives, what does he proclaim? Liberty. To the blind, what does he proclaim? Recovery of sight. He preaches, look, there is freedom from the penalty of your sin. There is. There is freedom from the tyranny and power of your sin, your slavery to your sin. There is freedom, there is liberty, there is forgiveness. And all of this is found in me. The good news, the good news, the gospel that the Lord Jesus proclaimed, the gospel that we proclaim is this. We do not need to earn our way to God. Because Jesus has earned our way for us. That is the gospel. Oh, that is good news to the poor. That is liberty to the captive. And that is recovery of sight to the blind. The good news is simply this. That God in Christ Jesus is willing to say to you, your sins are forgiven. That is his message. Fifthly, these verses tell us of his reception. How did this go over? He's read from Isaiah, nothing startling or surprising there. What is surprising in verse 21 is his claim, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And what's the response in verse 22? And all spoke well of him. 
and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. They liked it. They were astonished. There was something very appealing, something different. And you see this as you then follow the Lord Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. There are always this crowd. There's always this multitude. There are plenty of people following in his wake. And there is a measure of astonishment. This is new. This is different. This is fresh. But what do we discover time and time again, beginning right here at this point, is what? That the moment these people understand what the Lord Jesus is really saying, that marvel turns into disdain. Right? That, that pleasure at hearing his words, that enjoyment at hearing his sermons, the moment they understand what it is exactly he as is saying, all of that dissipates and it is replaced by animosity, sheer enmity. And the question soon comes in this case, verse 22. Is not this, right at the end, is not this Joseph's son? Is not this Joseph's son? Uh, we know him. We know him. He played with our children. He learned what our children learned. He ate and drank what our children ate and drank. He studied with our children, ran along to school with our children. He grew up among us, and at 13, 14 years of age, he started to work with, with Joseph, and he applied himself to a trade. He got pretty good at it. I have a couple of his chairs in my living room that I sit on. Great workmanship, no problem with that. Always well-behaved. In terms of appearance, nothing that really set him apart, nothing particularly spectacular about him. And now all of a sudden we hear these things of, that he's doing, healing and teaching. And now all of a sudden here he is in our midst and he's taking us back to Isaiah, a passage we're all familiar with. He's claiming to be the fulfillment of this passage and he is claiming to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor. He is proclaiming to proclaim what? He's preaching what? Liberty to the captives. And he is claiming to preach what? Recovery of sight to the blind. I think I get what he's saying. Uh, I actually think he might be implying that I'm blind. I'm captive. Uh, I'm poor. I think he's putting me in those categories and his point is this, uh, that I stand in need of God's grace, that I'm utterly sinful in the sight of God, that being a Jew hasn't earned me anything in God's sight, and coming here to the synagogue Sabbath after Sabbath hasn't earned me anything either, participating in the sacrifices and doing my best to obey the law, uh, none of that has earned me anything in the sight of God. And, and, and if I understand him correctly... He is saying, I have this need. I stand in great need of getting right with my God, who I think is my God simply because of my birth and the fact that I am a, a Jew. And the Lord Jesus basically says, yes, you've got it right. He makes two appeals, doesn't he? We'll get to this in more detail in just a moment. He appeals to an incident in verse 25 involving Elijah. He appeals to another incident in verse 27 involving Elisha. And his point is what? That a prophet is not welcome in his hometown. 
And their response to the Lord Jesus, the more they understand exactly what he is saying, it culminates in what? Look at verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. They get it. Please get it. They reject his message. Why? Because they refuse to identify with the poor, the captive, and the blind. Why? Because they refuse to acknowledge their need of God's grace. This is the reception he receives. And this is the reception he experiences repeatedly throughout his earthly ministry. Let me give a couple of pastoral warnings here before we move on to the sixth point. I need to just belabor these a little bit and perhaps speak to one or two gathered here. Uh, I want us to understand from this text, and again, I may just be speaking to one or two, but so important that I do speak faithfully and directly. Um, We need to hear this. Unbelief is a moral choice. Did you just hear what I said? Unbelief is a moral choice. It is not an intellectual choice. That's what we're told it is. It is not. Unbelief is a moral choice. J.C. Ryle wrote a couple of centuries ago, Do we imagine that if we had only seen and heard Jesus Christ, that we would have been his faithful disciples? Let us observe the people of Nazareth. Oh, let us observe the people of Nazareth and learn wisdom. They saw his miracles. They heard him preach. And they rejected him. They did not reject him for intellectual reasons. They rejected him for moral reasons. They rejected him, yes, out of unbelief. And the root cause of their unbelief, enmity, hatred. So my friend, I am speaking to perhaps just one, maybe two. Just give me your full attention for a moment, I I pray you. you. If you aren't a believer, and if you are sitting there perhaps thinking to yourself, well, I'm not a believer because I just can't buy into all of this stuff intellectually. I'm not trying to pick a fight with you, but I am going to say to you, you you are deceiving yourself. The issue is not intellectual, and it never was intellectual. The issue is this. You hate the Lord Jesus. That is the issue. Dead in your trespasses and sins, and that complete enmity with the living God. Let's call it like it is, please. The problem does not reside here. The problem resides here. And you stand in need of a radical, miraculous new birth. You stand in need of a work of the Holy Spirit whereby he enters the heart and he softens it and he turns the heart heavenward in love for God and the glory of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. But please do not 
sit there thinking to yourself, I have weighed the evidence and arrived at this conclusion. You may think you have done that, but I submit to you the reason you have arrived at that conclusion is, arises from a problem, a condition of the heart. And you must be born again. Let me give another pastoral warning that arises from this text. It is simply this. I'm speaking to our younger ones especially. And again, maybe some of our older ones. We want to be inclusive. But definitely some of our younger ones. Familiarity with and proximity to Jesus will not save anyone. Did you get that? Familiarity with and proximity to Jesus will not save anyone. Let me state it in different terms. It is possible to be familiar with Jesus without knowing Jesus. In even different terms, it is possible to know the stories, the scriptures, the doctrines without knowing Jesus. A young woman shared with me recently that a friend of hers at college, a, a Christian college, a conservative Christian, Bible-believing, God-fearing college, that a friend of hers one month ago came to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, a young woman at this college, a woman who had been raised in a Christian home, a woman who had participated in activities in her local church, a woman who had engaged in short-term mission trips a month ago, first year of college, comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. How is that possible? It is possible because familiarity with and proximity to Jesus. Think of these people in Nazareth. What good did it do them? Absolutely none. You young ones, Hear my words, bide my words, please, you young ones. Especially those who have made a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus and perhaps even followed his command by entering the waters of baptism. That is wonderful. But please understand, a day is coming when in reality, this must be made your own. And it's going to go, I'm belaboring this more than I intended, but I think it is important. It's going to go in one of three ways. Let me just tell you younger ones right now, you parents write it down, you mark my words. It's going to go in one of three ways. Either it will be a seamless transition from six, seven, eight-year-old and all that you've believed and professed to believe to your teenage years and adulthood, a seamless procession, transition, or it might actually be what? Something that involves a, a oh, we might even say a climactic moment where, where it is appropriated and applied to yourself in a way it never was before. Or what might be happen? It might be a long, drawn-out, protracted season in which you wrestle, in which you doubt. All the while, the Lord working in your heart, whereby you arrive at that moment where this is really yours. It's not yours simply because it's your parents. It is yours because it is yours. And it's not merely your familiarity with or proximity to Jesus. It is you and Jesus. Your faith in him. Your faith, yes, knit him together with you. And it's going to go in one of those three ways. I pray it doesn't go in a fourth way, which is what? It all proves false. 
and you walk away and you abandon the faith. You apostatize, in effect. I pray that it doesn't go that way. Oh, but make no mistake. And some of you older ones, perhaps, who've been living in that condition, I don't know, of Christless Christianity, dare I say? There you are claiming the faith for a year, two years, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years. Never been any change. Never any growth. Never any manifestation of holiness, real love for God and zeal for the things of Lord. Lord, no passion when it comes to his word. Yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. My wife drags me here on a Sunday morning, but I'm a Christian. Oh, my friend, hear my words again. Familiarity with and proximity to Jesus will not save you. Oh, we must take him as our own and be knit together with him through faith. As Richard Sibb so wonderfully put it, faith is the marriage of the soul to Christ. So let me put it to you this way. Are you wed to the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, you are not a believer. Are you wed with the Lord Jesus Christ? And is he your savior? Is he your Lord? Is he your prophet, your priest, your king? Oh, I know I'm getting off on a bit of a tangent, but the text, I think, requires it. It is mind-boggling. How could these people have been so wrong? 30 years they've been with him. 30 years. He's in their midst. They see him. They interact with him. They now hear of these wondrous miracles. They now hear him go to the scriptures and make a very unmistakable claim in their presence. And they are ready to throw him off a cliff. Oh, my friend, the heart is exceedingly wicked and deceitful beyond belief. Close with Christ. And make sure you are holding on to Christ. That Christ is yours. Your faith is in him. Your young ones, you're not merely following your parents. You teenagers, young adults, that you're not merely just following a tradition in which you were raised and you kind of like it. You older ones, well, it's the way my papa raised me. And here I am. I kind of like the church. I kind of like the music. I kind of like the community. No, my friend. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? And are you one with him through faith, wed together with him? Oh, these verses tell us of his reception. And I pray the Spirit of God will give us wisdom in these things. I need to move on now. Number six, thankfully the last one. These verses tell us of the full scope of Christ's redemptive mission. They tell us of the full scope of Christ's redemptive mission mission. He appeals. I mentioned it earlier. You noted it undoubtedly as we read. He appeals to two historical events. The first in verse 25 involves Elijah and what was going on, a great famine in the land of Israel and Elijah a little hungry. Someone needed to take care of the Lord's prophet Elijah and there were plenty of widows, plenty of widows in the land of Israel. And where did God send Elijah? To a Gentile. Oh, you, you, you can just see them going red in the face as he tells that story. I mean, they must just have gone ballistic that he would say such a thing. He doesn't stop there. Second incident, Elisha, a few years later, plenty of lepers in the land of Israel, leprosy, a rampant problem. 
Plenty of beggars, plenty of poverty, plenty of problems, plenty of Israelites. Uh, the only leper who was healed was whom? Naaman. A what? A Gentile. What is he saying? Guess what, my friends? I have come for the poor. I have come for the captive. And I have come for the blind. And I couldn't care less if they're a Jew or a Gentile. Because I've come for the nations. And they hate him for it. And they usher him off to that cliff's edge. And they are ready to heave him. This man, they've known him for 30 years. They are ready to heave him over the cliff's edge. He has come for the nations. He is revealing the full scope of his redemptive mission. Luke, Luke emphasizes this, stresses it from beginning to end. Let me take you to three passages to demonstrate this. Go back with me to chapter 2. And here Luke emphasizes that the Lord Jesus comes for the nations. He is just an infant. His adoptive father, Joseph, his mother, Mary, they have taken him up to Jerusalem to fulfill the law, this law concerning purification. There's an old timer there named Simeon. He sees the Lord Jesus. What does he declare having taken this infant in his arms? Verse 29, Lord, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. It's a person. My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. It's plural. Oh, just, just skip back. You have to see it. You have to build the bridges and make the connections. Just skip back. Same chapter, verse 10. What does the angel declare? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. Singular. There it is, the Jews primarily in view. The Jesus is a Jew. He has come as the king of the Jews. It is true. But now here, Simeon says what? No, it's not the people. It is the peoples. And in case you misunderstand what I'm saying, verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. He has come for the nations. You go all with me now all the way to chapter 13. And here Luke stresses the fact that Jesus includes the nations in the kingdom. Luke chapter 13. Look with me at verse 22. And he said to his disciples, that's Luke 12. Stay with me. Luke 13. Verse 22. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out and people will come from east and west, from north and south 
and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And so this identification of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, and all of the promises associated with the kingdom of God, and who will be brought into and included in this kingdom, is people. And the Jews understood what he was saying. East. East of whom? East of us. West. West of where? West of where we are. From north and from south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. Oh, Jesus includes the nations in the kingdom. Now, just one more text. This will suffice. There are many more. It is a major motif in Luke's gospel. Look with me at chapter 24. It's rather lengthy, but it is worth reading in its entirety. Luke 24, look at verse 36. As they were talking, post-resurrection, we're the other side of the cross and the grave. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they would still disbelieve for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So not only does Jesus come for the nations, Not only by his own words, his own declaration, does he include the nations in the kingdom, but he commands his disciples, his followers, us by extension, to proclaim the gospel to the nations. Because Jesus is God's salvation for all peoples, we take, we proclaim, and we live it out, the gospel to all people. Let me draw out some implications for this. I need to look away from the few scattered notes I have up here because the time is quickly moving on. Uh, Let me just draw out some of the implications of this. The fact, the full scope of Christ's redemptive mission, when we keep it before us, uh, this is the reason, this is the reason our missions budget here at GCC continues to grow. And it should always be growing. Woe on us if it does not grow. This is the reason next month we're sending teams to Guatemala and China. You want to know why are we doing that? This is why we're doing that. This is the reason we're organizing a soccer camp next month. This is the reason we offer medical clinics here a couple times a month. This is the reason we fast and pray for the missionaries on that monthly insert 
in our worship guide. This is the reason we're praying. I don't know if we're all praying. I know I'm praying that the Lord will call someone from among us, our midst, and send them off to the nations. This is the reason we're thrilled, or we should be thrilled, to see the nations coming to this country. This is the reason we think strategically about how to reach those in our community who are from other places. This is the reason we reject ethnocentric thinking. If you're not familiar with ethnocentric, this is the reason we reject tribalism and any spirit of tribalism. This is the reason we think of kingdom building before country building. This is the reason we're prepared to give sacrificially to the publication of Bibles, the translation of books, the support of pastors, and a myriad of other ministries. This is the reason, last point, our mission statement at GCC is what? To delight ourselves in God's glory. And do what? Declare that glory to the nations. Because this text, these verses tell us, in no uncertain terms, the full scope of Christ's redemptive mission. He is here for the nations. He is here for all peoples. Because Jesus, as Simeon declared it so long ago, is God's salvation for all peoples. Laying the nations aside for a moment, that truth that Jesus is God's salvation for all peoples, it implies that Jesus is God's salvation for me. And he is God's salvation for you. And as the Lord Jesus commanded, way back there in Luke 24, all those centuries ago, he sends his people to proclaim what? Repentance and forgiveness of sins for all who believe in Christ Jesus. Oh, wonder of all wonders. This text, these this little hymn was on my mind a lot this past week. I don't know why. A wonder of all wonders that through thy death for me, my open sins, my secret sins can all forgiven be. Oh, make me understand it. Help me to take it in. What it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. God's salvation for all peoples. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that Christ might be exalted in our midst this morning, this day, not just in our midst, but in our hearts. That truly our contemplation of him might be sweet. Our study of him might enlarge our faith, hope, and love. That all the truths we've cons considered this day concerning him might warm our hearts and draw forth worship and praise and adoration. The unbelievers before you and in our midst, we intercede. We pray this day that you might indeed convince them of their poverty, of their captivity, and of their blindness. And you might give them eyes to see your glory in the face of Christ. And that there is indeed forgiveness of sins, peace with you, and the hope of eternal life for all who come to you in and through Jesus Christ, this we ask in his precious name.
Amen.